The Edwin Smith Papyrus. Hippocrates. Aurelius Celsus. Galen. Archigenes. Claudius Galenus. Percival Park. Jean Godinot. Theodore Bavarian. Marie Curie. Louis Calvert. Janet Lane Clayton. Austin Hill. Richard Nixon. Harold Zura Hosmer. Chris Sweeney. Chris Hopkins. What do they all have in common? They all loved talking oncology. Hello, I'm Joseph Iskia. Welcome to part two of the conference highlights from the recent Prospect 2019, an annual event proudly supported and once again competently delivered by Janssen. The conference was held from May 17th to 18th in Sydney at the Hyatt Regency and delivered some outstanding presentations regarding prostate cancer management. I caught up with esteemed academic urologist Marcus Grafen from the Martini Clinic in Hamburg and our very own all-round good guy, Lawrence Krieger, medical oncologist at Royal North Shore Hospital. What these two don't know about non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer has not been invented yet. How do we define non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer? So we define these uh, patients uh, on conventional imaging. They should be negative on bone scan or CT scan, which were the inclusion criteria of the studies that were going on. And the ideal candidates for that are those with a, with a short doubling time, and it's actually 10 months that we should look at. Those with lower than 10 months are good candidates for that and with a PSA of about 2. Okay, and what do we make then of this nodal disease? Where When is nodal disease not metastatic? Nodal disease is not metastatic when it is in the pelvis. So as soon as we see it, outside the pelvis, we consider this as metastatic disease. Okay. And you did mention this PSA doubling time of less than 10 months. Why is that so important? Where, where did that cutoff come from, Lawrence? Well, we know that if you look at the data with the original registration study for denosumab and its role in this setting, which was a negative study, but it was a proof of principle that when the doubling time is less than 10 months, it's a significant predictor of the development of avert disease and premature death from prostate cancer. Excellent. So it highlights. So Matt Smith in his 2013 JCO paper has set that as, as a really good cut off for us. So let's move on then to the ideal patient. Who do you think is the ideal patient then that we're considering for these new treatment options that are available in M0CRPC, Marcus? So it's a patient where we, who fulfills criteria. So we see that there are no metastases on conventional imaging. It should be fit. And uh, one thing we have to, to remember is that the drugs that are now available are well tolerated. So we can a little bit expand the, the indication, certainly. And yeah, almost every patient can be a good candidate for this. Excellent. Lawrence, let's go back to you then. So now that we've got these drugs available, can you run us through what drugs we're talking about and also how efficacious they've been in the studies that have been done so far? Well, we've got three principal players at this point in time, and they're all novel, very potent, androgen-receptor-targeted therapies, oral therapies, well-tolerated, with uh, very predictable side effect profiles, slightly different between them. But the three principal players are enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide. And the average improvement in metastases-free survival is in the order of 22 months in all three of the major studies that are about to be published and follow through. Overall survival data is still immature, so we can't draw conclusions, although there is a suggestion that treating earlier and harder in these patients that require an intervention because of the doubling time may translate to improvement in overall survival as well. And how comfortable are we using metastasis-free survival as a primary endpoint? I know we've got IceCap with Chris Sweeney who's driving that. Are we all happy with it? Well, it's very variable in the setting that we've got so many lines of systemic therapy that it becomes very muddied and therefore we need a surrogate. And while not all health authorities and regulatory authorities and reimbursement authorities are recognising that at present, it does seem to be a re- 
reasonably good surrogate, although it is a point of contention. But for us as oncologists and treatment and the impact on patients, both psychologically and physically, it seems to be a very important um, uh, endpoint to at least acknowledge. Okay, so we're looking at the non-metastatic patients. We've mentioned the no these androgen receptor pathway inhibitors. How about some of the classic players that are very close by? So can we treat these patients with chemotherapy, Marcus? We should not do that, actually, because we don't have data for that. And we have this well-tolerated, proven uh, effectiveness uh, drugs. So I think that the first solution is clear. And let's go to another agent that we often see around this time, denosumab. You mentioned it as being the control arm that we use as the cutoff for the PSA doubling time. Does denosumab have any role in these patients, Laura? Currently, there is no evidence to say that we should be using it. It clearly has other roles in looking at bone protection in patients where it's indicated and, and clearly in disease with overt disease in, with bone involvement. Of course, there is early data suggest that rank ligand inhibitors may have some antineoplastic role in their own right, but this is very early work looking at. And there are studies going on in multiple tumor groups, but right now the answer to that question is no, it doesn't in this particular cohort. When we're looking at treating patients in this space, where could we be caught out? Who are patients that are not suitable for these new angiogen receptor pathway inhibitors? So these are certainly those patients with a very long doubling time and uh, patients with a low PSA level. We're not investigated in that, in that trial and therefore we can not give this data, uh, this uh, drug for these patients just now. Thank you very much, Jen. I really appreciate you taking the time out. And here we are at the pleasure of having you two guys guide us through Prospect 2019 in Sydney. Thank you. Michael Hoffman is a nuclear medicine physician in the Centre for Cancer Imaging at the Peter McCallum Centre in Melbourne and discusses the exciting new field of lutetium-177 PSMA for advanced prostate cancer imaging and theranostics. If lutetium was a superpower, then Michael could wear a cape and his underpants on the outside. Does that make sense? Not really. It's lucky that everything Michael says does make sense. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in Sydney presenting at this pretty impressive meeting with a number of international speakers, which has been very educational for me. Uh, so update on lutetium. So we finished our phase two trial at Peter Mac and we extended that to a 50 patient trial. And the results of that were presented in February at ASCO GU. Uh, in San Francisco. And what we saw in this heavily pre-treated group of patients, most of whom had progressed after docetaxel, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and 50% who had had carbazitaxel, so a really end-stage group of patients, was that we saw a PSA response rate of 64%, over 50% response, uh, which is quite impressive for that group of patients. And they had uh, very good symptomatic responses as well. So it's a very well-tolerated treatment. And we followed that up with a multi-centre Australian trial called the Therapy trial. This is a trial run through ANZUP, the Australian New Zealand uh, Urology Academic Society, uh, together with support from the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia and Endocyte that manufactured the PSMA 617 and ANSTO who make our lutetium. And that trial's going well. We've recruited over three quarters of the patients. So it's a 200 patient study and we anticipate that we should be presenting results next year. Wonderful, Michael. Now, today in your talk, you presented some very interesting data on your selection criteria for these studies that have probably enriched your patients population for those that are most likely to respond. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, so that's true. So it's a theranostic therapy and theranostics is a word that encompasses a diagnostic and a therapeutic. So this is very different than what you do in medical oncology. You have a patient, you prescribe them enzalutamide or abiraterone or chemotherapy, docetaxel, carbazitaxel, and you hope that they're one of the lucky ones that are going to respond. The theranostic paradigm has always been completely different. 
Uh, so we first do a PET scan where we image the target. And if the target is not expressed, then we do not proceed with treatment. So in the case of uh, lutetium PSMA therapy, we are doing a PSMA PET first. And now this is also very different than, let's say, anti-estrogen therapy in breast cancer, where you take a single biopsy and you say, is this disease estrogen receptor positive or not? Since we are doing a whole body scan, we ensure that all sites are PSMA expressing before we embark on the treatment. And to assist us with that, we do a second PET scan, uh, which is an FDG PET scan. FDG is radiolabeled sugar, and tumors that are growing quickly use a lot of sugar, so they light up very brightly. This is our bread and butter PET scan, and it allows us to see sites of tumors that are FDG positive, rapidly growing aggressive sites, without PSMA expression. And that's also a marker uh, that we should not go ahead and treat these patients. And currently in the therapy trial, around almost one in three patients actually that are screened with PSMA and FDG PET are deemed ineligible or unsuitable for the treatment. And I tell these patients that this is not a bad thing. You know, it's good that we've done these scans. It's good that we've considered you for this therapy, but at least we can tell you up front that you're not likely to have a fantastic response to this therapy. And we're not going to embark on another line of futile therapy. And that enables your oncologist to then consider what other options are available for you. There's a lot of talk of maybe moving this even further forward in the management of men with prostate cancer. What do you think of this? So we've been using it as a last-line treatment, and to be honest, I think it would be better as a first-line treatment, but there are risks with that, and we need to be careful. We're giving the patients really very high doses of radiation. It's an intravenous injection that circulates for some hours in the bloodstream before it finds its way to the tumour, and that means that there can be significant side effects from this treatment. And as you know from the external beam world, often side effects from radiation occur many years after the treatment. When we're treating men after, at the end of life, as a palliative or life-prolonging therapy, this is not of much concern because the patients are not going to live long enough to see these adverse events. But as we move this treatment more forward, we need to be mindful of that. So apart from the risk of secondary cancers, any other main adverse effects that are coming through in the studies you're doing at the moment? So it is a very well-tolerated treatment, but all treatments have side effects. And the main side effect with lutetium PSMA is salivary gland activity. So patients experience a dry mouth, Probably the majority of patients get a little bit of a dry mouth. Usually that's something the patients will only tell us on prompting. But a small proportion of patients get really marked dry mouth and need to change what they eat, use some artificial saliva to get through the night. And dry eyes can be a problem as well. And probably the main other toxicity is hematotoxicity. It's not a big problem, but there is a small portion of patients that seem to be particularly sensitive. And we see a drop in platelet count uh, with thrombocytopenia. And sometimes that can be quite slow to recover. The main other toxicity is potentially renal toxicity. The radiation that's not taken up by the tumours comes out of the kidneys fairly quickly. So the kidneys do actually see a good dose of radiation when with multiple cycles. We are seeing a drop in kidney function, which is minor. But again, if you use it upfront early on uh, in patients that are going to live a long period of time, could become more significant. When patients do progress after the PSMA treatment, what is their pattern? Do they have a characteristic pattern of progression? So they do. The predominant pattern is progression in bone, and prostate cancer likes growing in bone. But even in patients with soft tissue and bone disease, what we often see is that the soft tissue disease, which includes lymph nodes, but also sites like liver and lung, if they're very PSMA avid, just disappear. And the soft tissue disease seems in general not to come back. We see just incredible responses. But the patients progress 
progress with bone within bone or bone marrow more specifically. And eventually these patients get a marrow full of disease and can present with a pancytopenia and, and a leukoerythroblastic picture. And that can be very problematic. That's the main pattern of progression. And the second main pattern we see is liver metastatic disease with lower PSMA expression. Now there's another trial, an international trial, which is a registration trial called Vision. How does that compare to therapy and, and why do you think therapy has an advantage of recruiting patients to the trial that you're doing? So the Vision trial is an industry-sponsored trial sponsored by Endocyte, who uh, purchased the asset and since been taken over by uh, actually Novartis. And it's a large 750-patient study being run in multiple centres throughout the US and Europe. And it's comparing lutetium 617 to best standard of care uh, post-docetaxel and abiraterone enzalutamide. And best standard of care cannot include systemic therapy. Although if you've had abiraterone, you're allowed to swap over to enzalutamide or vice versa. But for example, other active agents like carbazitaxel or radium are not allowed in the vision trial. And so that's problematic because it's essentially almost a open label, not placebo, but lack of therapy arm. So if you're randomized to the standard of care arm, you may go to your oncologist and seek other therapies and that might cause you to go off trial. The therapy trial is a smaller trial. It's only 300 patients. It's not a registration level trial. Having said that, we hope that it might show an improvement in overall survival. And importantly, it's got an active control arm, which is carbazitaxel. And carbazitaxel is a proven life-prolonging therapy. So the oncologists counseling patients can put their hands on their heart and say, you are not being denied best standard of care if you enroll in this trial. You're either getting the experimental agent that we don't know if it's better or the current accepted standard of care, carbazitaxel. And we are not seeing many patients dropping out of either arm on the trial at the moment, which is great. Well, that is exciting news about therapy. When do you think it'll read out? We're all holding our breath in, in anticipation. So we've randomised over 150 of 200 patients and we're hopeful that we'll complete recruitment by the end of this year and perhaps we'll have some results to present in the middle of uh, 2020. Thank you so much, Mike. We've been very generous with your time and uh, another fantastic talk today. My pleasure. Look forward to speaking again. Henry Wu, Director of Uro-Oncology and Professor of Robotic Cancer Surgery at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. He gives us his insights on the who, when and how of ADT. Henry, what are some of the key messages you want our listeners to hear about? Look, I thought it was very interesting to go back to where it all started, which is with the uh, publication by Hutchins and Hodges back in 1941, where they published a paper which uh, was actually a series of experiments on um, a series of controls, uh, men with BPH, men with prostate cancer, and believe it or not, four dogs. Now, the upshot of that uh, series of experiments, it uh, demonstrated the uh, relationship between androgens and uh, the depression or progression of prostate cancer. And since then, ADT has a, had a very uh, important place in the management of uh, men with prostate cancer. So how do we decide who are the best people to offer ADT to? Has that changed much over the last 20 years, do you think? In short, it hasn't changed a great deal, but there are now greater nuances in how we deliver and how we administer the ADT. The mainstay has always been in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. But what I mean by the nuances is that for the majority of men now, they're not going to just have ADT alone. In particular with metastatic disease, they're going to have their hormone therapy in combination with other agents. For example, that might include chemotherapy such as docetaxel or an AR target 
targeted agents such as abiraterone, and we're about to hear at the forthcoming ASCO how enzalutamide will have a role to play in this space as well. We also understand that uh, we need to carefully manage the potential adverse effects associated with ADT. And apart from uh, my presentation, which has mentioned some of the things that we need to look out for, for example, lipid status, the cardiovascular risk factors, and also uh, bone mineral density, we also need to consider things such as uh, exercise, uh, which can make a real difference uh, to not only their prognosis, but their overall quality of life. So it's more than just uh, writing a prescription for ADT. It's also a case of uh, managing the patient uh, who is on ADT. Okay. And let's go back to one of the great areas of controversy, which is whether with nodal disease, should we be starting ADT? Is that a population that we're treating too late or too early? If we start it with their nodal disease too early, that's what Messing would have us believe, but a lot of people aren't doing that. Are we missing an opportunity? What do you think of that sort of population? That's a very interesting subject matter. There haven't been that many randomised controlled trials in urology which have uh, evaluated uh, that type of question. And when we do finally get an RCT that tells us that we should perhaps be offering ADT if they have node-positive disease after radical prostatectomy, you would think that that would become the standard of care. And quite clearly, that hasn't been the case. But it's important to um, have a think about the reasons why that might be the case. The thing is that that particular clinical trial was performed in a different era to now. It was in the pre-PSA era, and the types of cancers that they were operating on are somewhat different to the types of cancers that we operate upon these days. And we also, when we look at the outcomes of the, the surgical outcomes of those patients, the positive margin rate was in the vicinity of 40 to 50%. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was uh, certainly at a rate which would be considered unacceptable by today's standards. That population of men may not necessarily reflect the population of men that we currently operate upon, so it may be uh, overstretching it to uh, extrapolate the results of the Messing study to our modern-day patient. So PSMA is a little more sensitive than uh, than Dr Messing these days, I suspect, so it is very, very different. Well, it, it's, it's, it's quite possible uh, that if we had a PSMA scan available in, in the uh, days in which the Messing study was uh, performed, I would not be surprised at all if many of those men had uh, detectable metastatic disease. Oh, I think most likely. On the last question, well, I just want to pick your brain on one more thing, Henry. One of the bad raps that ADT get is around its increasing risk of death or increasing risk of ischemic heart disease. A lot of those studies come from an era when before we really took exercise and diet and nutrition and controlling blood pressure and cholesterol very seriously. Do you think these days we may see less cardiovascular side effects with a modern you know, attack on all those risk factors? I think we already are seeing uh, a decreased incidence by how we uh, select our patients for uh, ADT. Now, there is um, very good uh, evidence that if you have an individual who has significant cardiovascular risk factors, that you can decrease their risk of cardiovascular events by offering them an LH. RH antagonist rather than an LHRH agonist. And that's one of the ways in which we can uh, modify our management to uh, suit the risk of the patient. But as you mentioned before, um, we are now managing uh, cardiovascular risk factors so much better than we ever had before. And having an awareness of that makes a significant difference. Excellent. Henry, thank you so much. As we look out over here, over Sydney Harbour, the Sydney Prospect at 2019, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, I spoke with Asha Anton, who is up and coming in the world of Euro-oncology, and she discusses a very interesting new initiative from our friends at Eastern Health. She discusses the EPAD Prostate Cancer Registry. What is it, you ask? I'll let Asha explain. 
EPAD stands for the Electronic Castration Resistant Prostate Cancer Australian Database and it's been running for the last three years now where we've been prospectively collecting data from patients with CRPC. We plan to collect more and more patients with greater follow-up and hopefully this will give us real-world data which will have valuable insights into the patients that we see. Now, you had a really interesting graph up there which basically showed the path of every patient through the various treatment options. What have we learned by following these patients through all their different drugs that they've had along their treatment pathway? Yeah, the Sankey diagram that I put up is a really cool thing that we can do with our data. Each line in the Sankey diagram actually represents a patient and we can see each line of therapy that they received from the time of castration resistance. What we can see so far is that there are equal numbers of patients who actually received docetaxel and enzalutamide in the first line castration resistance setting. You've also moved on to a new project that you're doing called RealPro. Can you tell us about that? RealPro is our exciting new initiative to look at registry-based trials. So the existence of a current registry is actually really valuable because it enables us to use the logistics and infrastructure of the database where we're already collecting a lot of the information that we require for follow-up in a clinical trial and it gives us the patient base to be able to then perform a randomised clinical trial which we know is the gold standard really for clinical trials. Exactly and I think people think of registries and clinical trials as mutually exclusive so can you give us a specific example of how a registry can be used to perform a randomised trial? So just give us the ideal patient and what options they would have and then how we would follow them with RealPro. So RealPro is the way that we're going to do exactly that. So we plan to randomise patients to receive either abiraterone or enzalutamide. We're specifically looking at patients who are over the age of 75 and we're planning on comparing the rates of cognitive decline with each of these agents. We know from previous studies and from our own experiences that enzalutamide is associated with significant cognitive decline in some patients and particularly the fact that in the first-line setting there are equal numbers of patients having enzalutamide and docetaxel but significantly greater numbers of enzalutamide compared to abiraterone. It will be important to nut out exactly what effects on cognition these two agents have in the elderly population. Wonderful. Alasha, thank you very much. Thank you for being here at Prospect in Sydney 2019. I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay. See you later. Thank you. So that's a wrap for Prospect 2019. So while the opinion polls were wrong about the outcome of the federal election, there was no misreading the audience at this fantastic multimodality meeting. We're glad you could tune in for some of the highlights. We have some great podcasts available to you and more on the way at talkingoncology.com.au or follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes or Twitter for the latest podcast releases with the Twitter handle at Talking Oncology. This podcast was produced by Joseph Iskier and Kara Webb and made possible by the generous support of Janssen. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and are not necessarily reflective of the views and opinion of Janssen Select Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof. This information is not medical advice and no decision relating to the management of any patient should be made with reliance on the information contained in this presentation. It's your responsibility to prescribe appropriate treatment in accordance with your clinical judgment and by reference to the appropriate Australian product information or other information supplied with the relevant product, including in relation to any indication, dosage and route of administration. So if you're still with us after that disclaimer, we hope you join us for other podcasts.
This Talking Oncology podcast was proudly brought to you by Janssen.